Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. It's no secret that the Papal Conclave convened on April 18, 2005, to elect the head of one of the world's few remaining imperial monarchies. However, those participating in the Conclave and those assisting the cardinals who will elect the next Pope are sworn to secrecy under the threat of excommunication regarding any of the events of this historic gathering. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with papal scholar David Osborne, the author of The Last Pope, who was interviewed on this program in June of 2004 about his book. The Last Pope is a novel about the lives and papal competition of two cardinals of the Catholic Church after the death of a conservative and long-tenured pope. In this interview, we discuss the process and some of the politics in electing the successor to Pope John Paul II. I spoke with David Osborne from his home in Connecticut and asked him what he believed would occur just prior to the opening of the conclave on April 18, 2005. I think there's going to be a great deal of politicking and a great deal of, of attempted influencing. The cardinals are in a very peculiar position. There are front runners, and it has happened and it does happen uh, in the past, and I'm sure it will happen in the present, that sometimes a front runner gets pushed forward and people vote for him simply because they're afraid that if they don't vote for him, that they were going to uh, suffer the consequences if he's elected pope. You, you have that problem, for one. Now that's, that's within any voting framework. In this particular case, you've got uh, a tremendous problem of which way does the church go. Does it go for a continuation of John Paul II's uh, very hard line, very absolutist, traditional approach to, to uh, all the doctrine of the church, which has gained them a lot of people in South America, particularly among them the great masses of, of the uneducated people in South America? Or does he lighten up a bit, uh, the next pope? Uh, do they elect someone who will lighten up and pay heed to some of their constituency base in, in North America and in Europe, which is an area in which they've lost quite a bit of ground in the last, in the last 20 years? While they've gained in the South, they've lost in the North. So what are they going to do? Well, David, before we get into the answer of what are they going to do, let's step back to your first statement in which you said that if some of the cardinals don't go along and vote for the front runner, are you implying that the vote and the balloting is not secret? It's secret. Oh, no. Uh, it's, it's, it's not secret in the, in the extent they don't know who's, you know who's voting, but at the end of each day of voting, they announce what the, what the figures are. Is it 60, 60 to 40, or is it, you know, whatever it may be. But they don't assign who voted for who. No, on they what don't ratio unless unless one of the cardinals wants to de- self declare. Well, exactly, but and your question is a very legitimate one, but it 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 gets to be known. These people are locked up together. They, it 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 gets to be known from sideways looks, from whispers, from uh the people sense that somebody hasn't voted for them or they sense uh that they're going to vote for somebody else. Uh, the people are people, and in a very close, close thing, body language and facial expressions account for an awful lot that's not said. Will this conclave be locked up and enclosed like the past ones? Yes. 
Sure, absolutely will be locked up. It's going to be totally secret. Uh, they are under threat of excommunication, and that just that doesn't just go for the cardinals. Uh, that goes for everybody in the conclave, which are the firemen, the the, the priests who are confessors, with the uh, the cooks, the cleaners, the the secretaries, whoever they may have, security people. One word, and they're excommunicated. So that's deathly, deathly, and complete silence and total incommunicado with the rest of the world. They are really cut off. No cell phones, no communication of any kind whatsoever. Then let's step forward to what you were talking about of the possible front-runner, who that may be, and the balance of voting for him towards the beginning or not? It's hard to tell. Uh, you have three or four possible front-runners, beginning with uh, with Cardinal Ratzinger and uh, Sodoma and some guy, get, 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 the, get the Spaniard's name mixed up with the other fellow. They've, the names are so so completely alike. Uh, the Samalo the of Spain, who's the Chamberlain of the Holy Roman Church, and the Sodano of Italy, who's Secretary of State. These people might be considered front-runners. On the other hand, you have four or five other people, including a couple of South Americans, who can also be considered front-runners. They're in the impossible bind between a rock and a hard place. Which way are they going to go? This is what I keep asking myself this. Now, what they may do, they may find themselves in such a bind, uh, because they have lost so much in the North, that they may vote an older pope, uh, someone in his late 70s, who they figure isn't going to last all that long, as kind of a proxy pope, an interim pope, uh, until they can vote someone, uh, until they figure which way they're really going to go, and sort of tread water and mark time and give themselves a chance to breathe and figure out the whole thing. That's what may very likely happen. That's not particularly unusual when a long-serving uh, manager or director uh, leaves the position. It's a very difficult position to follow for someone else. For sure. And a short-timer will allow for the transition that you describe. You know, John Paul II is a pretty tough act to follow, too. I, I, don't, I don't envy the man who, uh, who was elected pope this time. He's, he's, got the, he's got the shadow of John Paul looking over him all the time. Now, whether he's a liberal-minded person who wants to come in, who wants to, uh, to initiate some reform in the church, or whether he's a hardliner who's going to follow John Paul's, John Paul's hard line, that remains to be seen. But either way... He still, he still is following somebody who, in a sense, has become such a giant, uh, at least media-wise, in the world, that it's, I don't know where he's going to put himself. Uh, I don't envy the man. John Paul's predecessor uh, was a short-timer. He was there less than a year. Well, he was there 33 days, and uh, the, the 33 or 34 days, actually. The, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's been written about him. There's been a great deal of speculation about him. Uh, he theoretically, according to the Vatican, died of a heart attack. Uh, he was apparently uh, sort of the the surprise that happens from time to time in a papal conclave where none of the front runners end up pope. Somebody completely from the outside comes in. John John Paul II was completely from the outside. And John Paul I certainly was, and they ended up with a pope that scared the devil out of a lot of them because apparently two things were going on. One, apparently he had a, a quite a lengthy hit list of everybody he was going to get rid of in the Vatican who had been involved in any way with the appalling financial scandals which the Vatican had been involved in for the previous 20 years. 
That's one one hit. What, the one thing that he was going to do. The other thing, apparently, it was rumored all over the place, was that he was going to change the papal attitude towards contraception, among other things, and um, and and come out with a papal bull which said that this was this was permissible, and this was went completely against Opus Dei and against a lot of the hardliners. The interesting thing about it is that they said that he had a bad heart. In point of fact, his heart was not all that bad. In point of fact, his health was not all that bad. He died very suddenly uh, uh, in his bed without ever doing what he would have done if he'd had a heart attack, which is to hit his red alarm bell, um, you know, his panic button, which, which every pope has on his bedside table. And then a fact emerged, according to, to Yollop, who wrote a book uh, called In God's Name, when he researched it pretty thoroughly, then apparently what happened was that the two undertakers, I forget the names of, of them, the two, two Italian brothers who run an undertaking establishment that takes care of the Pope's bodies, apparently they were called to the Vatican before the Pope died. I think we need to make it clear that we're talking about the death of John Paul I. Yes, John that Paul occurred II. in 1978. Yeah, absolutely. This this raised all sorts of questions. He was known as the Smiling Pope. He was a perfectly lovely guy, actually, a very gentle, very loving person, and a very a very liberal man, and far far more liberal than John Paul II. Uh, he was really following in the tradition of of, of John the Twenty Third and Paul the Sixth and apparently was going to make some major changes in the church while well, he lasted 34 days. Uh, what happens with his successor to John Paul II? Uh, it's, again, once, once again, just not to sound like a broken record, but it's up for grabs, I think. But it could be somebody who comes completely from the outside, the least person in the world they expect, can suddenly become pope. And what usually happens is it, it's, it's a kind of a, a voting block uh, or you know, compromise. It's, it's a trade-off. There's a lot of politicking that goes on during a conclave. And uh, you vote for my man, and we'll see that you get this, or we vote for your man, and then you'll see that we get that. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's swapping off and paying off. Tell us a little bit about the history of the seclusion of the cardinals during the conclave. And I want to say, we're talking with David Osborne, a papal scholar who is not Catholic, who wrote a book called The Last Pope that sets up the story of two competitors in a papal conclave after the death of a well-known and well-loved pope in a fictional setting. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. David, tell us the setting of the papal conclave and the well, first history. First of all, of one has to understand that the papal conclave was the result, strangely enough, of a disastrous conclave that occurred in the year 1274. The various cardinals were locked up in isolation, relative isolation, to vote for a new pope. They couldn't come to any conclusion whatsoever. They sat there and they argued, believe it or not, for three solid years. I think it was 34, 33 or 34 months. The townspeople in the town they were in were so exasperated and so annoyed by this that they took the roof off the building they were living in so they would be exposed to all the elements and stopped supplying them with food and water. As a result of which, they elected a pope immediately, within the next day or so. And that pope was Gregory and Gregory X. And Gregory X decided something should be done about it. He issued some encyclicals and various papal letters in which he devised and constructed an entire voting procedure 
which is today known as the Papal Conclave. And the, the, he, he ordered out the complete secrecy, the isolation from the world, how the cardinals should live, where they should be, where the voting should take place. And this hasn't changed. They're doing exactly the same voting procedure with exactly the same kind of ballots and exactly the same everything as he laid down in 1274. It was reaffirmed in 1621 by Gregory the Fifteenth. It was reaffirmed by Paul the Sixth in 1975, and it was reaffirmed in one sense by John, with slight changes in in, in the voting majority, in um, for this recent conclave. Now, what do they do? From the time the Pope dies and from the time he's buried, the cardinals then gather in a, in a modern auditorium known as the Nervi, which is off one end of the Basilica. And there they, they vote and they elect and they are appointed uh, uh, all the people who are known as the conclavists who will take care of them when they're in seclusion. When the conclave begins, the first thing they do is that they go to the Pauline Chapel in the bottom of the Vatican, in the bottom of the Apostolic Palace. They go to the they go to the chapel and they're not alone. They are with dignitaries of state, uh, foreign representatives, princes of the church, and so forth. And they go to a mass. That mass stated and said, and and they sing. Uh, somebody shouts out, "Extra omnes" means everybody leave. Everybody except the cardinals leaves. They are then literally locked into the place. They they can't go out of that area of the palace. They used to live at nighttime in very uncomfortable, very small prefabricated cells, and the toilet facilities were not very good. The running water wasn't very good. They were allowed one secretary and one valet. That has been changed. John, John the uh, John Paul II built at the cost of twenty million dollars a thing called the Santa Marta, which is a small hotel within the palace grounds. And that's where they stay now. They each they have 108 suites and 26 private rooms. I think it is within the within the Santa Marta. Each one has its own bathroom, so they're infinitely more comfortable. However, they are just as they're just as isolated as they always have. The second day, then then begins the actual serious voting. They proceed to the Sistine Chapel, where they hear a mass, and then they are locked into the chapel. Literally, a chain is put across the door, and they're locked in there. They have two votes in the morning, and they have two, two, two casting of ballots in the morning and two casting of ballots in the afternoon. The, uh, at noontime, they're unlocked and allowed to leave to eat, and they have to come back and do the same thing all over again. They are arranged around Michelangelo's beautiful Sistine Chapel. They're arranged, they're, they're arranged around it in their thrones. Their thrones are draped with purple, if, it's, if the cardinal has been made a cardinal by the current pope, or green if, he's, if they've been made a cardinal by a previous pope. They're not big thrones because they, they can't stack too many big thrones for 120 cardinals in a room which isn't all that big. There's an altar underneath Michelangelo's great, great fresco of the Last Judgment, and on that altar are two big golden urns. They're given ballots as they walk into the place, and the ballots are, by, I think, five by six inches in size, and they have to write, handwrite the name of the person that they choose to be pope in their own handwriting. And then if it's folded over, the ballot folds over four or five times. They then go to the altar. Each one, when he's finished his vote, goes to the altar, bends a knee, and swears before Jesus Christ that the person he has voted for is actually the person that he wants to see as pope. 
puts the ballot onto a silver dish, which and then the silver dish is then tipped, the ballot is tipped from that dish into one of the golden urns. You have uh, people who are called scrutators, who then scrutinize each vote, pass it on to another man who does the same thing, make sure it's correct, and reads aloud who has been voted for. Not who votes, but who has been voted for. At the time that the ballot is tipped off the silver plate, or when all of them are off? When all of them are off. To answer your question about exactly how the voting proceeds, I'd like to read a short passage from the book, if I may. Uh, let's presume that each cardinal has now marked a ballot, and what does he do with them? When the ballots were duly marked, each cardinal, one by one, and beginning with Carezza, approached the altar, bent a knee to it, and holding out his ballot, he swore, I attest before Christ our Lord, who shall be my judge, that I elect him whom before God I think ought to be elected, and the same as to the vote which I shall give at the excessive. Each then placed his ballot on the pattern, and after tipping the ballot from it into the urn, returned to his chair. Ignatius, who had marked his ballot for William Nagordo, was among the more junior cardinals and thus among the last to approach the altar. All ballots submitted the senior cardinal scrutator, mixed them together by shaking the urn, and the urn was brought to the scrutator's table. There, the junior scrutator removed them from the urn and counted them. Each ballot was then unfolded by the second scrutator so as to only reveal the name of the cardinal the voter wished to see, see elected, and each was passed on to the third scrutator who read the name aloud. Like all his fellow cardinals, Ignatius kept a record of the votes on his specially printed tally sheet. A two-thirds plus one majority was necessary for the election of a pope. On the first round, no one had come close to it, and so forth. That's been changed. The, the two-thirds uh, plus one has been changed to two-thirds by John the 22nd. Now, the, the urns that that's talking about are two golden urns which are placed on the altar table. And that's basically what they do. They, they do that twice every morning and twice every afternoon. They then take the ballots, and one of the junior scrutators has a needle with a long, long thread on it, pokes it through a black eye on each ballot, which says, Eligo, I elect, and next to it, and strings all the ballots together. Ballots are then taken to this ancient pot-bellied stove, which has seen many, many conclaves. The ballots are put in the stove, this is at the end of the day, and burned. They used to use dry straw uh, to show a white smoke, meaning a pope was elected, and wet straw to produce black smoke to say that a pope was not elected. Today they put a chemical in. If the pope is not elected on the first day of voting, Evening time comes, they put a chemical in that produces black smoke. If they have a pope, they put a chemical in that produces white smoke. It goes up uh, out of this stove. It's a very ancient stove, which is completely incongruous to the to the surroundings. Up a long black stovepipe, like uh, you'd see one in a general store someplace, and out the roof of the Sistine Chapel. And now it's been added that uh, they will ring bells at the election of a pope. Yeah, they will ring bells, lots of them, when a pope is elected. When a pope is actually elected and they have, they have achieved the majority, the senior cardinal announces we have a pope to the assembled cardinals. Each cardinal on his throne pulls a string, and all the draperies on the, on the thrones all come down to the floor. They all approach the new pope, and he is asked, does he wish to be elected pope or not? Volo or nono? And nono means no, and volo means I wish. He says that, and there he is. He's Pope. They all bend their knee to him, and then they go through the whole, the whole, the whole ceremony of confirming the fact that he has been elected as Pope. 
a tailor has produced three sets of clothing, depending on the size of the person, and he's outfitted immediately. And they also bring up from the from next to the um, the tomb of Saint Peter, the deepest part of the of the crypts of the basilica. I think all the called the pallia, which is a shawl, ancient, ancient, ancient shawl, which has been used in every papal election. That's put around his shoulders, and he goes out on the facade of the Moderno. And the chief Carmelengo, who is usually the uh, um, the, the chamberlain of of the Roman court. Uh, announces to the world, Habemus Papam, we have a pope. David Osborne, author of The Last Pope, tell us about the politicking that goes on in the conclave between or around the two morning votes and the two afternoon votes. Theoretically, and it's only theoretically, they're not supposed to discuss politics or lobby. There was a papal bull put out, I think, in, in 1600-and-something, which threatened them with excommunication if they did. Nobody's ever paid any attention to it, and nobody's ever been excommunicated. There's a lot of, of whispered talk. There's a lot of, of sort of gathering together in groups and, and, and you know, smaller sides. And, and, and uh, you've got to remember that you're dealing with, with not sort of exalted ethereal beings. You're dealing with human beings like you and me and everybody else, uh, these people are people who want to see a certain man voted in as pope. They want that because they believe that is, is, the, is the important thing for the church, or they could have selfish reasons where they believe it's important for themselves. Or they could say that uh, this would change the hierarchical setup, which would make things better for themselves. It's, it's, it's awfully hard to tell. You just don't know what lies behind the ambition of a lot of people. It's... it's you're dealing with the largest corporate enterprise in the world. You're dealing with one of the world's great, three great religions. And whoever runs it uh, is in a position of tremendous power. Uh, whoever is, 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 is known to have favored him, really favored him, is also in a position of power because unquestionably he's going to be paid off to a certain extent. Uh, the, pope, the current pope had, had many favorites that, 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 he, that he regarded very highly who he placed in high positions, that's quite normal. That's politics. That happens everywhere. It happens in the United States. It happens in France. It happens in England. That's the way, that's the way it is. Let's speculate about the issues, the political issues that will be foreseen. What you're going to have, basically, is the major issue, I think, today is, is the Church going to stick with John Paul II's absolutist approach to the, to, to the papacy in which everything had to stem from the Vatican? Or is, he going, or is the next pope going to be willing to institute or at least institute a dialogue with the constituency in Europe and in, uh, and in North America? Local control versus central control. Yeah, right. Uh, as to which way the Church is going to go on many, many critical issues such as contraception, uh, marriage and the priesthood, celibacy, women's rights, uh, homosexuality, uh, you, you name it. And one of the most important areas which has been neglected, which I think really in, in a funny way was responsible for a lot of the, the ghastly scandal of, of the pedophile priests in this country, which, is a, which the Vatican chose to ignore for a long while, was simply because what was ignored before that was what was specifically requested in Vatican II by, by John XXIII and by Paul VI, in, in a, whole, a whole fresh doctrine that they put out as to the relationship between the bishops and, and uh, the laity, they wanted a far greater communication, a greater communal feeling between the bishops and the laity. And that didn't happen. 
with uh, a centrist power, that evaporated to a great deal. And the bishops were able to get away with murder, uh, quite frankly, or get away with with transferring uh, a pedophile who they knew to be a pedophile from one archdiocese to another one where he promptly proceeded to carry on with with his infamous behavior. I don't think this would have happened if there had been a closer, a closer, more open, and more frank relationship between the bishops and their laity. I really don't. Uh, and I think that's something that has to be addressed. Do you think it will be addressed? I think if they don't address it, they're in more serious trouble than they are already. They're, they're losing a lot of priests. They're, they're gaining priests in, in places like Poland. They're gaining priests in South America. In France, Italy, Spain, and the rest of Europe, and in the United States, there's been a marked drop-off in the number of young men going into seminary, so much so and so seriously so that a lot of churches in the United States have had to close. This is disastrous for the Catholic laity because they have to have a priest in, in a church in order to, for, because the priest is the only person who can perform the sacrament. Do you feel that the difference in the people going into the priesthood in uh, South America versus uh, Western Europe and the United States is uh, affected by the economic abilities uh, in those areas? Yes, I do. I think very much so, yes. So how does that economic ability address the fidelity to the Catholic Church? Well, I think where you have the lower the level of the economic health, if you can put it that way, of a nation, of the mass population of a country, the poorer the people are, the more likely they are desperately to cling to something which gives them some kind of hope. If you get a country in the United States which is which is hardly poor compared to a country like uh Peru, for example, uh, you people people uh, don't feel the need to to cling to some to cling to cling to any strict religion as as much as they do if if they're in if they're in desperate straits. Uh, and I think this is very true uh, whenever you have uh, uh, whenever you have people in poor economic circumstances, you're going to have a greater flocking to the church than you would otherwise. Well, David Osborne, author of The Last Pope, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? I certainly can, and I don't think many people will want to read it. Uh, I'm on my second reading of the seven-volume novel, uh, Remembrance of Things Past, by Marcel Proust. As a piece of modern literature, I can absolutely recommend to all readers a perfectly remarkable novel called Bel Canto. It's a wonderful, wonderful read, and a brilliant piece of sort of tour de force of work. You can't put it down. You sit up all night with it. David Osborne, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. David Osborne is the author of The Last Pope. The books that he recommends are Remembrance of Things Past by Marcel Proust and Bel Canto by Anne Patchett. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 
5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.